Hey guys, welcome to Unleashed. I'm your host, Brent Henderson, and remember, we are the resistance. So last week was episode number one, and we talked about um, three words I gave you guys. I said, uh, I want you to write these down because these are the three most important things I'm going to have to say of any podcast, really. And it, that will always remain true. And those three words are identity, identity, and identity. Because there is nothing more powerful when we understand who we really are and who that is in Christ. Um, you know, last week we talked about, you know, the lion and the hyena and how a, uh, a lion never bows to a hyena and how Jesus will never bow to the enemy. And that is so important to keep remembering, you know, as every single day when I get up, I'm going to have new challenges. Um, and I need to remember who I really am in Christ. Because you think about this for a second, if I really am secure in who I am and whose I am, no matter what's going to come at me, I know that no matter what, I'm going to be okay, that God has a plan for everything that's going on. Um, so we're going to move in these first probably five, six sessions, really kind of laying the foundation for where we're going to be going as we you know, begin to have guests in and we begin to unpack things, because I want you to understand kind of the, uh, the format of how we're going to be looking at issues. Um, how do we walk through these unhealthy, you know, thoughts that we have, you know, that create these crazy emotions that if left, you know, um, untamed, um, if we don't tackle them, it's going to create unhealthy actions. So, but today's episode, we're going to go back to Africa again. Uh, but this is going to be interesting because we're going to go with something that rather than running on all fours is going to kind of creep some of you guys out. I know some of you don't like snakes. It's like Indiana Jones, you know, snakes. Why did it have to be snakes, right? But this episode is called Black Death. And I want to take you to a little town called Tabazimbi, um, probably around 2006. I was with a friend. We were over in South Africa. We had been on a safari, and we were doing photo safari and regular safari for several weeks. But this one day, we decided to to drive up to this town of Tabazimbi. They had some wild dogs there. And what we were, we were going to do was we were going to measure um, uh, the, the bite of these of these things. My friend's a wildlife biologist. And so we had some, like, rib cages from warthogs, and we had some, you know, bite uh, devices set up to kind of measure how much pressure there is pounds per square inch. And what's really cool is people don't understand that these African wild dogs, you know, they're, they're pretty tall. They're like 30 inches tall. But they have a much stronger bite, pounds per square inch, than even, even they, a pit bull does. People don't realize that, how strong of a bite these things are. Um, and it's, it's over, you know, double what you and I have. So they're, they're pretty fierce. So anyhow, we were going to this place. We were going to be measuring the bite. It was really cool. Uh, to watch them just tear apart the, you know, the rib cage of, of a pretty stout animal. And as we left there, we kind of packed our stuff up and we were driving back. We had about a 40 minute drive. And as we were going down this dirt road, I remember passing this, this uh, cart being pulled by a donkey with a local. And as we went by, we got maybe another hundred or so yards down the road. And I see something like about nine feet long. Yeah. And it's, it's going across this dirt road, but it's acting kind of wonky, right? It's kind of got its head up maybe a foot or so off the ground. Then it would kind of put its head back down. And finally, as we get close enough, I realized, and I said to my buddy, I said, hey, wait. I said, that's a mamba. He says, I know. I said, what do you want to do? I said, you want me to hit it? He says, no. He said, let's catch it. I said, you're an idiot. 
He says, no, seriously, you get the camera. He says, I'll go over here and get this big stick. And he said, there's something wrong. I must have been run over by that, that car, right? This is a bad plan, right? And any time, my friend, he says the words, hey, I got an idea. It never, ever ends well. And here's the thing they don't tell you about mambas. You know, they don't like, like tourists to know, know all this stuff. But when a mamba hits you, um, you know, you've got about 30 minutes on the good side, 10 minutes on the bad side if you don't have the antivenin. I mean, you're, you're fatal. I mean, it's, it's done. But what they don't tell you is these things can travel over 20 miles an hour, right? They can put over two-thirds of their body off the ground without touching anything. And when they hit you, they typically hit you in the, you know, like in the neck, chest, and face. Um, these things are really, really wicked bad. There's a reason that they call them black death. Uh, a lot of people think about, you know, in the Big Five, you've got the Cape Buffalo being called Black Death, but mambas really are the Black Death of Africa. So he goes ahead and he's he's looking for like this little fork stick or something, and I get the camera unpacked and I'm getting it out. And so as the camera is rolling, I, I was thinking about at that moment, it was like Wild Kingdom. I was a big fan of that show when I was a kid. I don't know how many of you can still even remember that show, but there was a... Uh, The host was Marlon Perkins, if I remember right. And he had a sidekick that was like the tough guy, right? And his name was Jim. And so I was thinking about in this episode, you know, um, I was going to be Marlon Perkins while Wade was playing the role of Jim. It's like, uh, I'll stay here in the truck while Jim Russell's the giant anaconda. And that's how I felt, you know. And so I was kind of feeling a little bit left out. I mean, here's this deadly animal. He's brave enough to do this stuff. And here I am, you know, on the other end of the camera. So after he gets the thing pinned down and he grabs it and he goes into this whole big spiel, you know, explaining the bite of a viper and the anti-venom that you have to have and all these things. I thought we were like just about done with the shoot until I realized, wait a minute, he's going to have this video footage and all these photos of him with this mamba and I'm going to have nothing. So the dumbest thing I think I've ever done was I said, give me that snake. So he hands me this live black mamba The thing wraps all the way around my arm. I mean, just over and over and over again. And as I'm holding the head of this thing, it's trying to back out of my my hand, trying to squeeze back out. And I am pinching the head of this mamba like you can't believe. And finally, when we were done, there was a, uh, a pickup truck full of some locals that were coming by. And they saw we had this snake. And so my buddy just kind of plays this dumb joke. And he kind of swings the snake over towards him. And he says, hey look at this really cool black snake I caught. And these guys are cussing them out, and, you know, they're saying, please, you know, kill that snake. It kills so many of the, of the locals around here. But before we did, you know, did all that stuff, I got my, my photographs and everything taken with it, and then we finally dispatched to the snake. And we get back in the, uh, the Jeep we were in. We're, we're continuing the, the trip. And as I'm driving, I look down at my hand, and there's blood pouring down my hand. And instantly I'm like, holy cow, did I somehow get hit by that mamba and didn't realize it? And then I re- remembered I had cut my, my hand on, uh, we were making an ironwood fire the night before, and it was still kind of open. Somehow I had opened it back up and it was bleeding, but that's the snake, or that's the hand that I was holding the snake with. And so I looked at Wade and I said, man, is there any possibility when we were playing with the fangs on that thing? It, it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? that somehow some of that venom came out and could it get into my bloodstream through that open wound? So I, you know, I immediately stopped the Jeep. We get Coke and something, we had Coca-Cola out and we're, you know, pouring it all over our hands, both of us, and cleaning this thing off. But it was in that moment, I began to realize, you know, how stupid 
was it that I had to have a hero shot as well, you know, holding this mom, but why in the world, you know, would I want to do that? So we get back in the Jeep and we head back to the, uh, to the hut that night. And when we get there, they've got a, uh, a fire already going. They've got all kinds of different meats they're preparing. You know, a lot of guys that had shot game during the day, you know, they're preparing all these different things we can eat. And as we're sitting there, we're, we're kind of just telling the story about, you know, what had happened. And about that time, there's a, a father and a son who had just come back from one of the hunting blinds across the property. We're on about 30,000 acres of land. And, I mean, they look like they'd seen a ghost. And we're like, what happened? And their PH, their professional hunting guide, um, comes over, and he's kind of, like, spooked. He's kind of laughing, but he's, like, not. He said, what happened? He says, oh, very bad. I said, what happened? He said, well, they had tipped their chairs back in, inside the blind. Now, these blinds are like, like cement bunkers, right, with a little window on the front that has a little thing you can kind of open sideways with a, like a pantyhose material that for bow hunters, you can, you can put a broadhead through it if you want to leave it shut. You can see through it, and you can shoot through it. And so where these guys have shot broadheads through this, this material, there's always those little three-prong holes or two-blade you know blade holes that have gone through. Well, the thing is with... Vipers over in, in South Africa, you know, you've got puff adders, you know, and, and uh, cobras and all kinds of things around there. What they do is they, they look in those dark places in the ground like an aardvark has dug a hole because you'll get small rodents. They'll get down inside of those little things and make little nests. And so these, these snakes are going in these low-lying dark spots, right, trying to find a meal and these blinds are sunken down in the ground with only the windows above ground, so you're almost at ground level where this, this window is. And he says, as we're sitting there, I'm looking out the one window, looking for the game that they, were, that they were after on this trip. Well, they had been on a long plane ride the day before. They were exhausted. Both of them had their chairs tipped back, and they're sound asleep. He says, as I turn over toward them and look, the window adjacent to their right Coming through one of those broadhead holes in that material is a puff adder. Now, a puff adder, they're not as long as a mamba. They're just about as deadly. You don't hear as much about them. Um, but they're only, this are only about three or four feet long, but they're like the size of your forearm, right? I mean, they're like the Popeye of the snake world. They're really thick. And he says, I, I scream. He said, these two guys wake up. They're screaming. He says, they're running around the blind. He goes, so I grabbed the, the arrow off the guy's bow and I shove that broadhead right through that puff adder as it's trying to come through this window. He said, and that was the problem. I, I, I hit it so hard with the broadhead. It was so sharp. It literally went right into the puff adder. And now I've got this thing on the end of this arrow. And we're all dancing around the blind with me swinging this thing around, right? So we're all kind of sitting there realizing, you know, Africa is a little different than here being in the lower 48 in the U.S. Because the difference between here and there is everything there wants to stick your Achillea. I mean, it really is uh, like Jurassic Park. So the next day, we, we kind of, you know, get in the, in the Jeep. We're going to go back out that afternoon. And so we, we get out and do safari. And we get back to one of these, these hunting blinds in the evening. And we're sitting in there. My buddy is taking this little mouse squeaker. And he's doing it, and he's just trying to mess with me. And I said, why are you playing that mouse squeaker? Because what you just told me was that these snakes like to go in these low-lying areas to kind of find, you know, their next meal. And he's laughing and finally goes, hey, listen, he says, we're going we're gonna to move. We're going to go over to this uh, tower blind. It's like a, like a ranger tower. You've seen those before where they, they kind of have like a half door you can open up, and you can when you get in there, you can see everything around you. So we are 
getting all of our gear, and I'm taking the first load up into this tower. It's probably about, I don't know, 25, 30 feet off the ground. We're going to be hunting jackals that night. So as I'm going up, I've got my backpack over one shoulder. I got my bow in one hand, and, and, I'm, and I'm kind of climbing with the other hand. And I get clear to the top of this thing, and I grab a hold of that half door on the handle, and I open it, and something, everything on the inside of this thing comes unglued, and there's commotion everywhere. Well, there was about six huge um, owls that were in there. There was like the mom and the dad and a bunch of the smaller ones. And I am hanging on. This thing about knocked me off the ladder. And as I'm hanging with one hand, this massive uh, owl with these huge talons flies back, lands on the top of that door, puts his face right down in mine and starts hissing. And now I'm going down this thing as fast as I can with one hand at a time, right, going down this ladder. But it's just, it's crazy the kind of stuff um, that you can see over there. But why is it, when you think about it, when we go and we love to hunt animals, for instance, some of you guys, I know a lot of you guys out there are going to be listening to this, love the outdoors, whether it be fishing or hunting. But we always have to show a picture of that, you know, that big northern pike. We have to show a picture of, you know, that big buck that we shot. Because somehow we bought into this lie that says we have more worth and value if the fish that I caught or the deer that I shot or whatever it is is bigger than what you got. And I see this when I'm, I speak for game dinners across the country all the time. And guys are always pulling their phones out and they're, they're showing each other, hey, here's the 10 point that I got last year. And the other guy's scrolling back trying to find anything he can that was bigger than that guy's. For somehow we bought into this lie that what we do really equals who we are. I mean, what's the first thing that a man says to another man after he's been introduced to him? What is it? Yeah, it's what do you do for a living? Because somehow we've equated what we do with who we are. And really those two things couldn't be any farther apart. Um, I was uh, at the Indiana State Fair probably, oh, about eight years ago now, seven, eight years ago, and I was with my daughter. She was in marching band. And so we're sitting in the stands, you know, watching all these different bands go by. Now, this would this was before I shaved my head. For those of you guys that know me out there, you know, I'm bald. I, I started I stopped shaving or I started shaving my head uh, about eight years ago. But before that, I was really struggling. My hair was, you know, like a lot of us getting thin and we're like trying, you know, mousse on your hair. You're trying to style it away. You can't see the bald spot, right? Um, you know, doing hairspray, everything. And so the, it was a really windy day. We're sitting there watching this marching band, and every time the wind would pick up, the top of my hair was so thin, and it would blow up like a sail. I mean, straight up like a mohawk, right? And so as we're sitting there, I'm trying to keep my head turned in a way that, that it's not going to keep, you know, be embarrassing and blowing my, this flap of my hair up. And this little boy that's sitting behind me, he keeps watching my hair blow up, down, up, down. Finally, he can't take it, and he reaches up. And he grabs a hold of my hair and he goes, hey, mister, he goes, why does your hair feel like cotton candy? I was like, that's it. I'm done. And I went home and I looked in the mirror and I went, why am I holding on to this flap of hair on the top of my head? Why was it easier for me to pick up a black live mamba than it was for me to shave my head? What is that all about? I mean, really, it comes down to this. I was getting my worth and value from how I looked, what people thought about me. You know, it's really crazy when you think about the reasons that we do things like that black mamba. Why did I need to pick it up? Because I wanted to be the hero in the shot. You know, when I go back and I think about um, 
you know, from our earliest memories, at least in my life, I know the enemy, he infected me with a lot of, uh, you know, things like shame. Um, and that's what he does. You know, he's, he's forging lies from our earliest cognitive moments to keep us on the hamster wheel of performance. And here's the thing. We all know what snakes do to hamsters. So when we think about a snake, we all know we've seen these before. They, they shed their skin. Why does a, sh- a snake shed its skin? Because it allows for new growth. And what that does is it removes um, harmful parasites at the same time. And that's the same thing. Last week we talked about identity. And as we continue to keep growing in this new identity that we have, Christ in us, rather than my identity coming from, you know, how big my muscles are or what my wife looks like or how much money I make or my job title, my education, whatever, the more we begin to grow into that, that new uh, life that we have in Christ, the more we can leave the unhealthiness, all those lies that caused us that shame and the need to try to pose, we can leave that behind because now we're, we're literally dead to sin but alive in Christ Jesus because we've been made new. So we have to, again, uncover you know, these lies that we're buying into so we can find the source. And Jesus knew that we were going to struggle with that. We have to understand where these lies are coming from because he knows that we're going to continue to believe that we're bad because we're acting bad. And I know that sounds kind of crazy to say it like that because a lot of us are thinking, well, if I did act bad, I am bad. You know, Paul talks about this in Romans 7. He says, you know, I do the things I don't want to do, but it's not really me doing it. What is he talking about? He's talking about that sin nature when he's talking about the lies of the enemy, like we talked about in our last episode. When the enemy shoots these flaming arrows at us, we know he can mess with our body. We know he can mess with our mind, which is our soul. But he cannot mess with our spirit, the core of who we really are. So at your core, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are still 100% righteous even though you have sin. And that's what Paul is talking about. I do the things I don't want to do, but it's not really me doing it. So Jesus goes back in John 8, 44, and he says these words. He says, you know, he's talking about Satan here. He says, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So right off the bat, he is helping us identify You know, when you have, think about this for a second, when you have an unhealthy thought just pop into your head, right? And we've all had that. We've all had it happen even probably today. You know, where did that thought come from? We know it didn't come from God. And did it come from maybe the pizza you had last night? Because if Christ is at your core and that's the real you, then you know that that thought didn't come from God, the real you inside of you. It comes from the father of lies like Jesus is talking about. So when did, when did all this stuff start? I mean, when we go back to the, to the garden, you've got Adam and Eve, right? And so you've got Adam and Eve. You know, everything is, has been beautiful. It's perfect in the garden. And God is walking through the garden one day, and he doesn't see Adam and Eve. He knows where they are, but they're hiding. And he calls out to them, and he says, well, where are you? And Adam responds, and he says, we're hiding. And he says, well, why are you hiding? And he says, because we're naked. And God comes back and he says, who told you that you were naked? For the first time, they're now looking over their shoulder because shame has now come into the world for the very first time. 
So this is where we're headed today with all of this, you know, the performance stuff with, you know, picking up the black mamba, worrying about how I look with shaving my head. And it's what we call the big lie. And the big lie simply says this, that my performance plus others' opinions equals my self-worth. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Your worth and value will never come from your performance or anybody else's opinion. Now, why do we give power to all those other people in our life when they're not the ones that created us and they're not the ones that died for us? You know, the only one that we answer to ultimately is God. You keep that in check and everything is going to be okay. But the enemy loves to come back after us in everything that we do, especially in the areas that we're really good at, right? Because he knows we're going to be getting our worth and value from the areas where we are noticed for, where we have talent in. Back in, oh, let me think, probably I graduated high school in 1978. Well, that just kind of timed me, didn't it? Um, I graduated high school, and I'll get this. When I graduated high school, I was six feet tall. I weighed 118 pounds. I didn't say 80, 118 pounds. I literally could turn sideways, stick my tongue out, and look like a zipper. I hated myself. Um, you know, I was bullied a lot. Never felt like I could compete in some of the athletics back then. But I worked in the steel mill for the next three years trying to, like, earn my man card. And then God got a hold of me one night, and he said, you know, I've got another plan for your life. Are you willing to risk doing something different with your life to do what I created just for you to do? And I left the steel mill. I remember that night I was sitting in the overhead box crane, and they were pouring some steel into a vat that unfortunately had gotten some water in it, and it blew up like a volcano. And in that moment, I realized, you know, there's a heaven and a hell. God has a plan for my life. Am I willing to risk doing something different just to follow the plan that God has for me? And I know a lot of you listening out there, you've been asking yourself that same question. And, you know, guys say, oh, how do I, how do I know what my purpose is? I'm never quite sure exactly how to answer it, except maybe to say something like this. It's whatever that thing is that you can't not do, or you'd be curled up under an overpass somewhere because it is so inside of you that you can't not do it. That big purpose that you have, that God has, that he made just for you. But if we don't understand how to untangle these lies that the enemy is coming after with, us with, we will end up making what we do into an idol, and we will get our worth and value out of that, and we will continue to pose. When I say pose, put that thing out there in front, like you know, guys flexing their muscles for someone else to see, because we want them to see what we think the best about ourselves. They want to see that part of us, or they, we want them to see that side of us because we want their good opinions. And this is really dangerous because now those things become an idol in our life, and we're not really moving into what God might be having for us. So then how do we, how do we fight back with this? When I went to college um, in Anderson uh, University in Anderson, Indiana, I was three years out of high school. I was telling you I worked in the steel mill, hated myself. And all of a sudden, I started getting noticed for something that I didn't even realize I had a talent for, which was music. Now, I, I knew that I could do music, you know, playing piano and stuff like that growing up. But when I got there, I discovered that, that I could sing. And I got, was able to sing, you know, good enough that I was able to go to um, national competition and take second in the U.S., some different things like that, which was like, wow. And before I knew it, I started getting noticed for that. And what ended up happening was that became an idol to me. And the next thing I know, I'm 
I'm traveling with a guy, Steve Chapman. We had a band, a band called the Chapman Henderson Band, which many of you um, would probably know that name later on, became Stephen Curtis Chapman. And so you can see where this is going. I mean, I was, I was touring with Sandy Patty after that. I sang with her for five years on the road, Avalon, Crystal Lewis, all these different ones. But here was the problem. Every time the tour bus would leave and we'd go out and we'd be performing in front of 10,000 people at night or whatever, you know, I'd feel like I was a somebody because everybody knew your names, kind of like cheers. They want your autograph. But then the, the bus would get home and you begin to feel like an anybody. And if I was off tour long enough, I began to feel like a nobody. And you can see how quickly when you put all of your eggs in one basket in that thing that you do well, it's really easy to feel like you're a somebody when you're on top of the world. But when that idol gets torn down, when that rug gets pulled out from underneath you, you can begin to feel like an anybody. And if it continues to happen, you can begin to feel like a nobody if you don't know where your one true identity comes from. Identity, identity, identity. So then what do we do? You know, Paul says in Ephesians 6, 16, he says, you know, in addition to this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. See, my good enough doesn't come from what anybody else thinks about me. It comes from God alone. And Paul, I mean, Paul is my hero. You're going to hear me talk about Paul a lot. But I love in Galatians, this is out of the message paraphrase, but it's chapter 2, verses 19 to 21. And what Paul says, and this is, this is very powerful, he goes, what actually took place is this. Now, let me set this up. Paul was a lawman's lawman, right? It was all about performance, and he was known for being a lawman's lawman. But when God knocked him off a horse, blinded him, spoke to him, got a hold of his heart, turned his life around, listen to the change now in how Paul speaks. He says, I tried keeping rules and working my head off to please God, and it didn't work. So I quit being a lawman so that I could be God's man. Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. Now listen to what he says. I identify myself completely with him. Indeed, I have been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion, and I am no longer driven to impress even God. Why? Because Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not mine, but it is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then he says, I'm not going to go back on that. Now, you have to remember, Paul could be put to death for these words in the society where he was living in. And then the nail on the coffin, listen to how he ends this up. Is it not clear to you that to go back to that old rule-keeping, peer-pleasing religion would be an abandonment of everything personal and free in my relationship with God? He says, I refuse to do that, to repudiate God's grace. If a living relationship with God could come by rule-keeping, then Christ died unnecessarily. I mean, you talk about someone just putting the nail in the coffin about where our one true worth and value comes from. It comes from God, and we're not even called to try to impress him. This is one of the things that I love is there's nothing that I can do or say that can make God love me more, and there's nothing that I can do or say that can make him love me less. Because his love is always consistent for me, no matter what I do, no matter where I've been, no matter what I've done. As his child, he loves me. And I love when I think about when others have abandoned us. He is the one that never leaves. And he has those nail-scarred hands that he's holding out 
And he says, I forgive you. What sin? I want to finish today up with telling you a story about the whole thing with the what sin. What are you talking about? When I graduated high school, I told you a little bit about that. But right after I graduated, before I went to the steel mill, you know, my dad was a business teacher in high school. And I wanted to make my dad proud. I think a lot of us as men, we want to make our dad proud. We want him to think the, you know, the best of us, that we're going to be okay, that we have what it takes, right? That's the man's biggest question. Do I have what it takes? And so I had been working for a shoe store during high school, and I was offered a store about three hours away from home. And I moved over there only a couple months after I graduated. And I had been there probably nine months, and I was, I was really getting lonely. Now, my, my family, we grew up going to church, and my mom and dad both um, were very, very involved in the church. About nine months into it, I was really, you know, at that time missing the girl that I had been seeing, missing my buddies, and a guy showed up at my doorstep that was one of the coolest kids in our class. Didn't tell me he was coming. He shows up, and he's got a case of beer, he's got a box of stogies, and he's got a big stack of porn magazines. This was before the internet. And he looks at me and he goes, we're going to have some fun this weekend. Well, that's not how I grew up. But in that moment, I wanted to impress this guy. Now, why would I want to try to impress, you know, this guy? Because I was buying into the big lie. And the big lie says that my performance plus others' opinions equals my self-worth, like we talked about. Well, I, in that moment, felt like I needed to perform to whatever the standard was that he wanted me to be so that I could be liked because I wanted to be popular. So for the next two days, you know, debauchery is the word, you know, we're, we're popping top, smoking stoves, you know, flipping through these porn magazines. He goes home on the Monday morning. I was probably hung over and I go to the store and it was maybe around noon and I was managing this place and the, the doorbell on the front of this little bell thing rings and I look up and here comes my mom and dad walking through the door unannounced, almost three hours away from home. And my mom walks through and she says, hey, we wanted to surprise you. And I said, you did. Have you been to my apartment yet? Because I hadn't cleaned anything up. She goes, well, we tried to go in there, she said, but it was locked. We couldn't get in. And I said, hey, listen, before you go back, let me get in my car and go down there really quick because there's some things I want to clean up. You know, you didn't raise me to be messy and I want you to come into a clean place. You know, I'm trying to cover my tracks here. So I jump on my 74 Firebird, you know, headers coming right off, you know, the manifolds. I fire that sucker up, and I go flying down Main Street, go sliding sideways, kind of like the old Starsky and Hutch television show. And I go flying in. I run up the outside steps to this two-story house, and I've got a 30-gallon trash bag. And I'm taking all of my debauchery, and I'm throwing it in the bag. I'm burning toast to cover the smell up of all the stogies and everything. and Because I, I, I knew my parents wouldn't approve of this. And so as they come walking in, I'm cinching up the very last trash bag. And so my dad sees me getting ready to take these downstairs. He says, hey, when does your trash go? I said, tomorrow. And he says, hey, just give me those bags. I'll take them down and I'll put them in your trash. And I'm thinking, great. You know, I got away with it. So the next morning I wake up and I can smell mom's, you know, Maxwell House coffee and French toast. And I come out and I sit down at the kitchen table. And I said, hey, I said, where's dad? She goes, oh, he's down on the front yard. I guess your trash cans were full last night, so we had to put them on top, and I guess some dog got into your trash, and it's all over the yard. And I am like, oh, my gosh. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm dead. I know it. You know, it's that walk of shame. I'm walking out the door, and I look down, and I see 
Blatt's beer cans, and I see Miss July and Miss September and all these things all over the yard, an instant shame. What am I going to say? What am I going to do? I mean, I'm caught in my sin. And I'm doing the walk of shame going down those outside stairs thinking, you know, what's he going to say? Here it comes. What, you know, the shoe's going to drop. You know, we didn't raise you like this. What's your mom going to think? You know, you're a disappointment to God. You know, I'm, I'm wondering what he might say. And as I get down there, he's putting the last bit of my debauchery into this trash bag and cinching it up and putting it in the trash can for no one else to ever see again. And he turns to me and I'm thinking, here it comes. The first thing he says to me is, are you okay? I, I, uh, I'm not, obviously. I'm really missing you guys. I'm, I'm really struggling. He says, yeah. He says, I understand. And then he says to me two more things. The next thing is, I want you to know I really love you. And then he says, I want you to come home. What do you do with that? When what you're thinking is going to be happening to you because you didn't perform well enough, you didn't get your father's good opinion of you, the fear is he's going to withdraw his love. But my dad didn't. And he set an example for me that I will never, ever forget. And to this day, when I sit down with someone to work with them to coach, I always say to them, first of all, I want you to know something. I don't care what your sin is. I care about you. And I care about the lies that you're buying into that are causing you to go and do these things. Let's work on that. And sharing with them the love of a father who says, I love you and I want you to come home. So if the big lie is that my performance plus others' opinions equals my self-worth, then what's the big truth? Here it is. That it's God's performance plus God's opinion that equals my self-worth. Because grace changes everything. You know, no matter who you are, where you've been, or what you've done, You need to know, just like Paul said, that you don't have to perform to get your father's good opinion. Will you do good things? Yes, because God will move you to do those things. But when you do mess up, when you do screw up, and you will, you didn't lose your righteousness because Christ took that sin upon himself, and he took it all once and for all. How beautiful is that? Well, let's see. Um, Eric, do we have a question this week? That we, came? Do, we do have a question. All right. This question's come to us. Uh, uh, Sean Harris from Chicago, Illinois, wants to know, what is the, what's the largest thing you've ever shot with a bow? <laughs> okay, Sean, wow. Um, what's the largest thing I've ever shot with a bow? Yeah, I do everything with a bow. I've been shooting for bear archery for years I mean, since I think I was eight years old when I got to see Fred Bear as a kid. Ah, wow. I've hunted everywhere. I mean, everything from Africa to Alaska. What's the biggest thing I've ever shot? Okay. Okay, here it is. You ready for this? It's bigger than a brown bear. It's bigger than a rhino. It's bigger than an elephant. And it's bigger than a blue whale. Not that you could shoot a blue whale with a bow. Not that you'd want to. Yeah, that'd be something. It'd be something. I'd be feeling so blue if I did that. Yeah. I don't know. Sorry, bad dad joke. 
it would, it, here it is. The biggest thing I ever shot was my neighbor's house. I am not kidding. <laughs> so we had this flower garden outside, and there was a groundhog that kept tearing it up. And I'd finally had it, so I open up a sliding glass door, and I pull my bow out, and I shoot. And the somehow the, the broadhead skips off the ground, flies through the air like another 100 yards. And I hear this whack, and I'm thinking I hit a tree or something. Or honestly, I, I remember, I think I thought I hit the neighbor's truck. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. So I go over, I sneak over, right? And I'm looking. I can't find anything. I'm going, okay, didn't hit anything. I didn't know what I hit. The next day, my neighbor shows up at my doorstep with a piece of wood with siding on it with my arrow and the broadhead stuck right in it along with the bill. Oh, no. <laughs> so there's your answer, Sean. It was actually a house. Uh-huh. So, Well, anyhow, you know, Keep tuning in. Um, you know, if you want to find these episodes, you know, you can go on. Um, oh, gosh, they're going to be all over the place. We, you know, you can go to YouTube, um, Spotify. Uh, where else can we find, Eric? What are we, where are the, the RSS feeds on these? Apple, Google, really any place that you listen to podcasts. Yeah. So the Unleashed podcast, you'll find it. The website you can go to, my website is unleashed.men. There's all kinds of devotionals and all kinds of stuff you can find on there, booking information, all the above. But anyhow, I hope this week that you found some encouragement. I hope you found the big truth in that it's God's performance and His opinion. Not my performance, not anybody else's opinion. It's what God thinks of me and he loves me and that's why he gave his one and only son i hope you understand that i hope you're able to put that into your identity and understand who you really are in him because grace changes everything my friend you are loved stay unleashed we are the resistance and we'll see you next time